Well, good morning. Uh, I want to thank Steve for giving me the chance to do this because I'll tell you one thing, when you have to prepare a sermon and teach on something, you learn uh, so much more about it. And I've been so blessed the last few weeks working on chapter 7 and 8. If you're, if you're new here, or uh, to my family that's all sitting in this row over here, uh, we are going through the marvelous book of Isaiah. And I have chapters 7 and 8 uh, today, which I've titled Truth and Consequences. Because in, in chapter 7, we learn about the truth of God's promises. And then in chapter 8, we see the consequences of not trusting those, those promises. We're going to hear about King Ahaz and a choice he had to make. A choice uh, between God's way and the world's way. While the context is ancient, the questions raised by this situation are timeless. What are we trusting for our security? Where do we turn when we're anxious? What do we rely on in times of crisis? These two chapters of Isaiah provide a wonderful and powerful lesson in crisis management. Uh, But before we dig in, let's ask the Lord to uh, join us in this endeavor. Heavenly Father, thank you for this this time. Lord, I pray that you would give me the words to speak, and I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to hear uh, more about you, and that your name would be lifted up, that you would be glorified, and your power and majesty would be magnified uh, through this sermon. Thank you for this time, Lord, and uh, we give it all to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's turn to the uh, seventh chapter of Isaiah. If you need a Bible, we will pass those out to you. It's on uh, 571 in those Bibles, and also in my Bible, and also in your Bible, right? Everyone who's got this Bible, it's the same page, 571. Now, while you're looking that up, um, let me share with you a concern I have uh, about these chapters at the heart of, of 7 and 8 is a warning. And to modern audiences, you know, we're a bit jaded because we see warnings all the time. We have warning labels, warning signs, and quite frankly, uh, they're all around us. In fact, uh, just last week, I got a warning from my son. My son, he came into the, the kitchen, I was there, and he, he brought his trumpet with him. And proceeded to go uh, get a bowl of water and fill the water, uh, fill the bowl with very hot water. And then I watched as he carefully unscrewed the valves on his trumpet and placed the valves in the water to soak. Apparently, his his music teacher thought that um, his trumpet sounded like it needed to be cleaned. Now, I don't know how much junk you have to blow through a trumpet before it sounds like it needs to be clean. But apparently, this, this trumpet had met its tolerance for foreign matter. Maybe because band is after lunch and my son has braces. <laughs> anyway, I watched Luke place these crusty valves in the water. And then, and I'm still not sure why he did this, he took valve oil and squeezed the oil into the water. Maybe to, I don't know, loosen up the crud. I'm, I'm sorry to the parks who lent us this trumpet, but it's okay. <laughs> so then, uh, then he turns to me and he says, Hey, Dad, don't drink this water. 
You know, I was tempted to take a swig of that hot, oily saliva water, but you know what? Now I'm not going to do it, right? So we're jaded. We have warnings that are all around us all the time, and quite frankly, a lot of them are ridiculous. Let me, let me give you a sample of some real warnings from real products. Here's a warning on a baby stroller. Remove child before folding. <laughs> a warning on a blow dryer. Do not use in the shower. Never use while sleeping. <laughs> a warning on a TV remote control. Not dishwasher safe. (laughs) A warning on a Halloween Batman costume. This cape does not give the wearer the ability to fly. A warning on a CD player. These are real, folks. Uh, Do not use the UltraDisc 2000 as a projectile in a catapult. (laughs) And finally, the last one, one of my favorite ones, a warning on a five-inch brass fishing lure with a three-pronged hook on the end, harmful if swallowed. (laughs) So we're jaded, and we see warnings all the time, but because we see these kind, we we, uh, tend to ignore warnings in general. But, But what do we do if the warning is significant and there are serious consequences for not paying attention? What do we do if we've come to a fork in the road and have to choose between two paths where one path leads to security and the other path leads to danger, where one path leads to life and the other to death? That's what King Ahaz was facing in chapter 7. And the way he handled that decision has lessons for us all. So let's turn now to chapter 7 and and see more about that. This is chapter 7. Verses 1 and 2 uh, to begin. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Okay, some context of what we're, we're seeing here. About 200 years before this scene, Israel had divided into the northern and southern kingdoms. The northern kingdom kept its name Israel, and the southern kingdom uh, was named Judah. And in this, in this story, the northern kingdom is Ephraim. As you can imagine, this was a terrible time in the history of the Israelites when God's chosen people were torn in two. Ahaz was the 11th king of Judah. He began his reign in 741 BC at the age of 20 and reigned for 16 years. Ahaz's father, Uzziah, also known as Azariah, Lisa, she wanted to make sure I knew the two names, <laughs> reigned as king of Judah for 52 years. He was a builder and a commander and a strong leader of Judah and led that that nation to an unprecedented half-century of peace and prosperity. 
But we read in Second Chronicles chapter 26 that when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. That destruction came when one day he decided to waltz into the Lord's temple and burn incense, something that only the priests were allowed to do. And um, because of this affront to God's holiness and his uh, lack of, of willingness to repent, God struck him down with leprosy right there on the spot. And he lived as a leper in isolation for the rest of his life. It was a tragic ending to a celebrated career. After Isaiah died, Jotham became the sole king of Judah. Jotham uh, is uh, uh, Ahaz's father. Unlike uh, Isaiah, though, Jotham was careful not to play fast and loose with the rules of God's regulations for his holy temple. Jotham is the first king in 170 years of whom nothing bad is written, except, and this is huge, the Bible says Jotham did not remove the high places. This line, nevertheless, the high places were not removed, occurs over and over again uh, in the history of Israel's kings, often with tragic consequences. So what were these high places? They were makeshift altars, many temples uh, that were common for the ancient Israelites uh, that were there before the centralized temple. These were places where they could go worship Yahweh and sacrifice animals to him. Before long, though, these high places uh, became centers for corrupt religious practices where idols were worshipped and sacrifices were made to pagan gods. And Jotham failed to tear these down. As a result, his son, Ahaz, grew up in an environment where corrupt religious practices were tolerated. Tragically, by the time that Ahaz became king of Judah, he was a full-blown pagan idol worshiper who had completely rejected his father's religion. To the point, even, we read in uh, 2 Kings 16.3, he sacrificed his own son to the pagan god Molech. This is the king of Judah, a 20-year-old young man who has nothing to fall back on except worthless idols and false gods. So it's not surprising that we read in the opening chapters of, uh, verses of chapter 7 uh, that when Ahaz hears that Syria and Ephraim are coming after him, his heart shook like trees in a storm. Into this situation, God sends the prophet Isaiah to rescue Ahaz. You see, Ahaz has abandoned God, but God has not abandoned Ahaz. Let's pick up the text then at verse 3 and look at verses 3 through 9. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Yashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to Washer's field. And say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. At the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, 
Let us go up against Judah and terrify it. And let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. So Isaiah and his son, Shayar, Yashub, go out to meet the king in the outskirts of town. Ahaz was there on the west side of the city uh, at Jerusalem's main water supply, no doubt making provisions for this imminent attack. And while he's there making plans, maybe in a rushed panic, He receives a prophetic word from God through Isaiah. Be careful. Be quiet. Do not let your heart faint because of these two burned out fire pokers. God says it's not going to happen. In fact, within 65 years, there won't even be an Ephraim. I can imagine Ahaz thinking, 65 years, that's, that's intriguing, but not super helpful now. But then Isaiah gets to the point. If you are not firm in the faith, or firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Ahaz hasn't been firm in the faith for years, if ever. But now he has to make a choice. Standing before him are his two options, personified in a prophet and a son. Isaiah's name means the Lord is salvation. His son's name, Shayar Yashub, means a remnant shall return. Ahaz needs to either trust the Lord and be saved, or God will allow the house of David to be judged and purged, where only the faithful will return alive. This is a life and death choice. And it's reminiscent of a choice laid before the people of Israel hundreds of years before as they camped on the plains of Moab ready to enter the promised land. In one of his last sermons to the Israelites found in chapter 30 of Deuteronomy verses 15 through 18, Moses makes this choice clear. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, If you obey the commandments of your Lord, your God, that I command you today by loving the Lord, your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord, your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them. I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. It was a moment of hope and promise, but there was a real warning in there with real consequences. Fast forward to the book of Isaiah. The Israelites now, 700 years later about, are facing expulsion from their land. It obviously didn't happen overnight. But in the intervening centuries from the time that Moses first offered his warning, the Israelites have systematically moved step by step 
away from God. To the point now where even a pagan king rules them and tolerates corrupt religious practices in his kingdom. It's tragic to see how far God's chosen people have strayed. And yet God is merciful. Trust the Lord, Ahaz, and you will be saved. But if you're not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. I'll even give you a sign, God says, according to verse 10 of chapter 7, to confirm my promise to you. Let's look at verses 10 through 12. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. God says, ask for a sign. Go big. Anything. And Ahaz responds, I will not put the Lord to the test. Sounds pious, but behind the refusal to ask God for a sign is a lack of faith. To wave the offer aside is no less than a rejection of God. Ahaz has other plans, as we'll see in a moment. When Ahaz rejects God's offer, this is a turning point in the conversation. Up until this time, Isaiah had been quietly advising the king. But now, when Ahaz rejects God, an exasperated Isaiah raises his voice and shouts out to anybody who would listen, in verse 13, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel. As we know from our Christmas hymns, it means God is with us. I wonder how the people of Judah received this prophecy. Was it, was it good news to them or, or, or bad news? Well, it turned out to be both good news and bad news. Let's talk about the bad news first. People always want to hear the bad news first, right? Bad news first. We know that, that King Ahaz is an idol worshiper. And we know from the book of Kings that the people of Judah are also fully immersed in corrupt religious practices. So there must have been, at least at some level, a sense of dread that God was in the house. It's like when you're a kid and you've been misbehaving all day long and your mother says, wait till your father comes home. My father's standing right there. Normally, the, the arrival of your dad in the driveway at the end of the day was a joyful event. But not if you've been spending the day in willful disobedience. You knew that there was a punishment coming. Very soon, King, because of King Ahaz's choices and the condition of the people's hearts, God would deliver them into the hands of their oppressors and they would enter into a period of judgment. And the sad fact is, is that many would not survive. In that day, according to verse 18, 
God is going to whistle for the armies of Egypt and Assyria, and they are going to swarm over uh, Judah like flies and bees. In that day where there once was abundance, now there will be little or nothing. Then the Lord says to Isaiah in verse 1 of chapter 8, Take a large tablet and write it write on it in common characters so that everyone who can read will be able to read this, this message. Maher Shalal Hashbaz, which in Hebrew means something like, and it's tricky, swift to plunder and quick to carry away. Swift to plunder and quick to carry away. It's a cryptic message, but it's explained in verses 3 and 4. God says to Isaiah in verse 3, Name your new son the same thing, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry mommy and daddy, the king of Assyria is going to be swift to plunder and quick to carry away the people of Damascus and Samaria, the very enemies that Ahaz was afraid of. But that's what Ahaz told That's what Isaiah told Ahaz in chapter 7. Damascus and Samaria, which are the capital cities of Syria and Ephraim, respectively, will not be successful. Their plans to attack you shall not come to pass. But Ahaz didn't believe Isaiah. In the 16th chapter of the book of Kings, we learned that instead of trusting God for protection... Ahaz went directly to the king of Assyria to form an alliance. Here's the account from 2 Kings. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria. Not Assyria, Syria. It gets confusing if you're not reading it. And from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Ahaz also took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria listened to him. He did indeed. As Isaiah prophesied, before his son Maher Shalal Hashbaz could say mommy and daddy, the king of Assyria came in and swiftly plundered and quickly carried away the people of Syria and Ephraim. But that was God's plan from the beginning, to allow the king of Assyria to defeat Judah's enemies in the north. Had Ahaz trusted the Lord, the Assyrian army would have stopped right there. But because Ahaz chose to reject God's protection, when the Assyrian army flooded into Damascus and Samaria, It just kept on going into Judah. And while that flood would reach up to Judah's neck, the text says, God would not let them drown. Because despite Ahaz's unfaithfulness, Emmanuel, God is with us. Let's read verses 9 and 10. Says, be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. 
Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. This is the part, this is part of the good news, the good news of the Emmanuel prophecy. The Syrian army would be only as successful as God allowed them to be. The Jews are still God's chosen people. He hasn't forgotten the covenant he made uh, with Abraham and the house of David. The immediate fulfillment of the Emmanuel prophecy is that Judah will not be totally destroyed. A remnant shall return. A remnant that one day, 700 years later, would see the birth of a king, a Christ child, Emmanuel, who would reign forever in perfect submission to God's laws, rescuing all those who call on his name and establishing a kingdom of perfect peace and joy that will never end. That's the ultimate good news of the Emmanuel prophecy. Now in verses 11 and 12, God turns his attention on his servant Isaiah. He wants to make sure that Isaiah has a proper perspective on the coming attack from Assyria. God warns him not to think like everyone else. Verse 12. Do not call conspiracy all this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. The Israelites were fearing the wrong thing. The armies from the north and the king of Assyria do not have ultimate power. Yes, they can, they can kill you, but that's where their power ends. Jesus explained this idea to a large crowd of people that had gathered to hear him teach. He said this in Luke 12, 4 and 5. Because I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast in hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. The Hebrew word here in verse 13 of chapter 8 is yare. It's a worship word that speaks of, of adoration and devotion and reverence for the Lord. But it also carries with it the idea of shrinking back in, in respect and in, in terror. A few years ago, we took our family to the San Francisco Zoo. And we had an opportunity to go into the lion house during feeding time. And well before we got to the lion house, you could hear the, the, the echoes of the roars of the lions and the tigers just echoing across the entire zoo. We got inside of the, of the, the lion house with, with Sophie on my shoulders. We worked our way over through the crowd of, of patrons to the, uh, to the cage that held the adult male lion. I've got to tell you, um, I guess I had never seen a lion that close before. I mean, it seemed so much bigger and so much more majestic. And that huge mane that was framing uh, the face, the, the whole experience 
uh, was so much more intimidating than I, than I thought. But then I remembered, I was looking at the king of the jungle, king of beasts, and when that lion's eyes met mine, and I was staring face to face at the top of the food chain, I imagined myself on the African plains in the wild where there was no bars between him and me. And the very thought of it, it, it made me literally weak need, and I had to put Sophie down. Uh, and for a minute or two, I, I was just felt a little like nervous. But I left the zoo that day with a profound respect for lions and, and tigers. A month later, I read in horror about a tiger attack at that zoo that um, left one person dead and two other patrons maimed. Eyewitnesses say the three young men, ages 17, 19, and 23, uh, were taunting the tigers. They were throwing sticks and pine cones and yelling and waving and apparently even dangling their legs over the railing. Well, at some point, one of the tigers, a 243-pound Siberian tiger named Tatiana, made an almost impossible leap across that moat and attacked the three young men who were taunting her. Uh, killed one guy on the spot and mauled two other guys. The two men who had been mauled ran bleeding for help 300 yards to the zoo's terrace cafe. Screamed for help, but the door was locked. Tatiana traced the trail of blood to the cafe uh, to kill the other two men. Right before she had a chance to kill them, the San Francisco police arrived, were able to distract the tiger, and then, and then kill it. It's a tragic story. Tragic story, but to me, there was one clear takeaway from this. You don't taunt a tiger. Having been at the zoo a month before and reflecting on this experience and being so close to the, these animals, I, I had a greater appreciation for why C.S. Lewis chose a lion to represent the Messiah figure in the Chronicles of Narnia. He needed a symbol of power and majesty, and Aslan, the lion, was just that. Maybe you remember this scene from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where the kids are visiting Mr. and Mrs. Beaver and they ask the beavers about Aslan. Is, is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you he's the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Well, that you will, dearie, make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then, then he isn't safe? said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about being safe? Of course he isn't safe, 
But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. God today is safe. We have declawed him. We have defanged him. So instead of a lion, we have a kitten. Kittens are fun to play with, but you would never rely on a kitten to protect you. That's the problem. In the process of making God safe, we have made him impotent. Ahaz thought that God was a kitten. He thought that the king of Assyria was more powerful than God. That's why he felt comfortable taking the treasures from the temple that had been consecrated to the Lord God and were holy and giving them to the pagan king of Assyria. This was an outrageous violation and gross irreverence to a holy God. Yahweh was no longer powerful. That's why Ahaz and the people of Judah worshipped other gods and bowed down to idols. And it's the reason why in the midst of the Assyrian crisis, verse 19 says, the people turned to spiritual mediums, necromancers, for answers beyond the grave. Aren't you glad that we have progressed as a people? Evolved, if you will, to the point where we would never consider such unsophisticated and superstitious means for providing real answers to real problems. I wish. Here's the description of the back cover of a book I found on Amazon titled, A Matter of Life and Death. In this illuminating book, the New York Times best-selling author of The Eagle and the Rose offers awe-inspiring new stories of helping sick and grief-stricken people heal, recognize their true path in life, and find peace in reunion with departed loved ones. And for the readers eager for more of the wisdom of Altia's Apache Spirit Guide, Gray Eagle, this book contains his timely and poetic answers to questions of war and peace, life, and death. New York Times best-selling author, Rosemary Altia. People are desperate for answers, especially in the midst of a crisis. Why am I here? What does this mean? When will it end? And when we don't have God and his word, we will listen to anyone who thinks that they have an answer, even an Apache spirit guide named Gray Eagle. As we near the end of chapter 8, things are becoming bleaker. Ahaz and the people of Judah are now entering a period of judgment. As events unfold, just as Isaiah had prophesied, verse 21 says, The people will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And because they will be distressed and hungry, they will be furious, and they will curse their God and their king and cry out, How did we get here? But then echoing from the distant past, we remember what Moses had said to his people, Hundreds of years before, if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today, 
you shall surely perish. The people of Israel had long ago abandoned God to worship other gods. And these are the consequences of those decisions. For people of faith, the Lord is a sanctuary, says verse 14. But for those who reject him, the Lord is a stone of offense, a stumbling block, a trap, and a snare. The message is clear. The Lord God is either Savior or Judge. He's either coming to rescue you or to condemn you. Chapter 8 ends with these words. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. That may be the end of the chapter, but that's not the end of the story. Because as we'll see next week, unto us a child is born. But not yet. It was a dark hour for the faithful few, the remnant who were charged with keeping God's teachings and testimony. But there was light in the darkness. There was hope in the despair because of God's promise. Emmanuel. And as we conclude today, it's our promise as well. In this life, we will have trouble. And you may be in the midst of a crisis even right now. Then you have a choice to make. You can either trust God or trust the world. One path leads to life, the other one to death. If you trust God, you will not be put to shame. The Bible promises in Romans 10.13 that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then you can join with the faithful who throughout the centuries have confidently proclaimed, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, the mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Amen.